Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is episode 331, and on today's podcast, I talk to Canon Professor Michael Snape, the Michael Ramsey Professor of Anglican Studies at Durham University, about his book God and the British Soldier. This study looks at the relationship between religion and the British soldier during the First World War. Michael spoke to me from his office in Durham. Welcome to the podcast. I wonder whether you could start by telling us why you wrote the book. Well, I wrote the book because I was invited by my former supervisor, Professor Hugh McLeod, to write something about religion and war in modern Britain. And um, as I looked at the subject area, I became increasingly aware that although there was quite a lot of commentary on the experience of British soldiers, the religious experience of British soldiers in the First World War, to a much lesser extent, the second. Um, there wasn't a great deal of systematic study in that subject area. So basically, I was able to negotiate a narrowing down of my original brief to write two books, one of which was called Redcoat and Religion, which was subtitled Cotton History of the British Soldier from the Age of Marlborough to the Eve of the First World War. And the second volume, the companion volume, was God and the British Soldier, which dealt with religion and the British Army in the First and Second World Wars. But in many respects, my interest was, as many people's interest in the First World War tends to be dictated by family experience and, um, in a sense, uh, those whom we've known or those whom we would have liked to have known. In this case, my, um, my grandfather, who enlisted in 1914, survived the war, served with the 12th King's Royal Rifle. Um, was my inspiration because his experience as an ordinary soldier, as a frontline infantryman for much of the war, and the dynamic of his religious life um, further into adulthood and indeed throughout his life was very different from the kind of cut and dried image that we had from much of the secondary literature uh, dating from the late 20th century and to a certain extent on into the 21st century, which tried to present the First World War as a calamity for religion, as a deeply secularizing experience for British soldiers as well as for others involved in the conflict. And my gut feeling from that personal experience of my grandfather was that simply wasn't true. So I, I looked beyond, obviously, his experience, looked at um, the experience of the British Army in that period and indeed in the Second World War. And as the book illustrates, came to rather different conclusions about uh, the significance of religion and uh, um, the effect of war on religious belief in British society and on the British Army in particular. So today we're going to talk predominantly about the BEF on the uh, Western Front. I wonder whether we could probably just take it back to 1914 and what was the state of religion in, in the nation? Obviously, that's a huge question. And, and how, how would you describe a term that's been used to describe that? Or that of diffused Christianity. What does that mean? And what did people believe in 1914? Okay, to take things therefore from the top, um, and the question of what was what was the state of British Christianity and what did diffusive Christianity mean? We'll, do, we'll separate the two. Well, we're dealing with an era before um, professional polling. There were local surveys of religious life conduct in Great Britain before the First World War in the Victorian period, in the Edwardian period. There had in 1851, as part of the uh, national census, uh, there had been a census of religion in England and Wales conducted, and it's um, 
its effects had been published. Uh, but there hadn't been a nationwide census of religion before then. And there wasn't to be a nationwide census of religious belief or affiliation in the national census, in fact, until 2001. So we're dealing with a pre-polling era. But the best statistics that one can come up with, and these have been produced subsequent to the publication of God and the British Soldier, but tend to underwrite its arguments and conclusions, were produced by Clive Field, who's a very accomplished statistician of religion in modern Britain. And through compiling all sorts of data from all sorts of sources, Clive Field illustrated that Essentially, 99% at least of adult Britons identified themselves as believers. The overwhelming majority identified themselves as Christian believers. There was a small Jewish population, uh, Anglo-Jewish, but also of more recent stock, as it were, immigrants from Eastern Europe. Um, the, the numbers, in a sense, as far as they can be reconstructed, say it all. But um, what is important in explaining this level of affiliation is the extent to which Christian belief and Christian affiliation was embedded in society at large. And this is where we get into the realm of diffusive Christianity. This is a sense of identification felt by many people, most people who are outside the inner core of what you might regard as uh, constant or regular churchgoers. And their attitudes are formed by the fact that the religious view of society at large is pretty consensual. Yes, there are confessional differences between Protestants and Catholics. Britain is an overwhelmingly Protestant country, um, if we just take mainland Britain uh, as meaning Britain in that particular instance. Um, there are also important denominational differences among Protestants, whether you're Presbyterian, Anglican, Methodist. But basically, these affiliations, these identities had been formed by 1500 years of of Christianity and more in these islands. And also they'd been formed by a tremendous resurgence of religious commitment, which characterized the late 18th century and indeed 19th century Britain. Um, Callum Brown, a very important historian of secularization, whose work I did use for God and the British Soldier, um, used uh, the term the last Puritan age for the period around 1800 up to around the middle of the 20th century and spoke very much about the salvation industry, which the revitalization of British religious life in the late 18th and throughout the 19th century had actually created a salvation industry, for example, that was marked by the fact that the vast majority even of working class children attended Sunday school for a period of time during their childhood. It was also illustrated by the fact that um, religious issues, religious questions, particularly over education in the 19th century, were really hot-button issues, that um, one's religious affiliation could actually be seen as a, a reasonable indicator of how you would cast your vote if you had the vote. So, for example, Protestant nonconformists being aligned with the Liberal Party as a rule, and Anglicans being aligned with the Conservative Party. And of course, in the immediate prelude to the First World War, of course, you had the Home Rule crisis um, affected and racked British politics for several decades. And that really brought out a sense of confessional identity. Unionist resistance, whether it's felt in Ireland or in mainland Britain, was to a very large extent rooted in a historic anti-Catholicism, which again spoke to the, um, the Protestant religious instincts of the great majority of Britons. So, I mean, this is just a rough picture. One could go into 
further detail, but just one thing that's perhaps worth mentioning, of course, is that um, the monarch, Britain possessed a sacralised monarchy, that um, King George V was the supreme governor of the Church of England in the same way that King Charles III remains the supreme governor. Um, he was extremely significant, extremely influential in uh, tapping into the religious energies, not only of Great Britain, but of the wider empire in terms of the national days of prayer, which he cooperated and to a certain extent initiated during the war years. And these drew on a long tradition of the appointment of days of fasting and prayer, which had characterised British life since the 16th century. I think it's important perhaps to regard this generation as running, as they did in so many other respects, on different software to our own. Religion really mattered. It mattered at a very profound level. It was not necessarily expressed in regular church going, but the effects of religion, a bit like the effects of the wind, could be told and discerned in public life and in national life very easily. Also worth pointing out, if we're in any doubt about this, that Britain in 1914 was the foremost missionary nation in the Christian world. Britain exported its religion to every corner of, uh, of the planet where at least its missionaries could access. So Britain had, you know, not only a strong religious culture, but also was recognised as being a key player in the whole business of um, the evangelization of the world, which had been a goal of the 1910 Edinburgh Missionary Conference, which is seen as a, as a headline event in the history of Christian mission. And the fact that it's held in Edinburgh is in itself significant. And just to give us an idea of the, the nature of society, church going, I think, in the UK at the moment is around 5%. What was it um, in 1914? Oh, as far as one can, well, these, these are figures which, to a large extent, elude us. We can often work with other statistics. It's estimated that around maybe 30-40% of the population, adult population, would be reasonably um, frequent churchgoers. That didn't mean weekly church. Um, that could be quite gendered. Women tended to go to church a lot more than men. It tended to be governed also by class. Um, in proportionate terms, the middle and upper classes were uh, more consistent churchgoers than the working class. But if you look at um, other indicators, if you look at the proportion of live births in England, for example, which um, were um, followed by baptism, these were extremely high, these figures. Also, if you looked, and this is very significant, at attestation figures, they tended to be collected locally rather than centrally in the British Army in this period. You know, the overwhelming majority of of, of recruits, be they volunteers, regulars, conscripts, etc. And often, given the demographic of the army, preponderantly young men, young working class men, the overwhelming majority identified themselves not only as Christian, but were very specific about which Christian denomination they belonged to. So really, again, it's going back to the point, we can't refute a believing society with a church-going society. The two are not strictly the same. And to make that mistake would be to kind of look at many places in the world today, for example, which are clearly, you know, um, believing societies. One's thinking of many Latin American countries, but where church-going will be much lower than uh, professed religious affiliation. Um, this was taken as a marker 
of religious commitment as a marker of religious belief, but we've got to be aware that it's not necessarily a very reliable. So how does, what, what sort of role does religion play in the trenches once once the BEF gets there and the, the volunteers are, are raised and they're deployed in numbers from 1916 onwards? How does religion shape endurance, morale and the ability to cope for, for men to cope in the trenches? Well, I think this is a really interesting and significant point because it was taken as axiomatic in military circles in the English-speaking world, and here, including the United States, Britain, and, and the wider Anglophone um, peoples of the British Empire. It was assumed that religion helped to make a good soldier. This was something that stretched right back into the 17th century. We might call the military revolution. It was characteristic of Cromwell and the New Model Army. It was characteristic also of... Uh, the Scottish covenanting armies of the 17th century. Um, Marlborough in his day was regarded as a pious commander who promoted religion. Um, we might see that less, as it were, in the Napoleonic period uh, with soldiers such as the Duke of Wellington. But even Wellington, for example, if you look at his uh, military and his political career, certainly played a great deal, placed a great deal of store on religion, its social utility, if nothing else. And certainly if you look at um, some of the heroes of the Victorian, if you look at Sir Henry Havelock, if you look at Charles Gordon, Gordon of Khartoum, if you look at um, Wolsey, if you look at Kitchener, if you look at Lord Roberts, they were epitomes of the view that uh, believing individuals, pious Christians, made for good soldiers. It was axiomatic. And this helped to explain why chaplaincy was privileged in the British Army, certainly from the Crimean War onwards, why churches were built for British soldiers in garrisons across the empire uh, during the 19th century and on into the, the 20th century. It helps to explain why soldiers' homes were set up by evangelical organisations. These were missionary institutions effectively but they were backed by military officialdom and not just the army by the admiral as well and they were backed in india by the india office um essentially religion its military utility its social utility its intrinsic value was was fully recognized and um we see how that translated into the context of the western front for example in the creation of talbot house in popperinger in uh, late 1915. Many of your listeners will doubtless have been to Talbot House, and there's a great deal of mythology surrounding Talbot House, as though it was some kind of one-off that was conceived by Neville Talbot and Tubby Clayton in the dark days of 1915. Well, that's not true in actual fact. Um, the, the, the formula for Talbot House was a tried and tested formula that would have been used and familiar to British soldiers um, for several decades. In fact, Neville Talbot himself had been an infantry officer and was for, probably perfectly familiar with the soldiers' institutes which the Church of England had established in many garrisons across uh, Great Britain during the late Victorian period. And the idea of this being a place where you come and meet the Padre, which is basically free of uh, the curse of alcohol, where you can find improving recreation, etc. It's all part of the mix that would have been familiar to the late Victorian army. So Talbot House is one illustration of how um, essentially the British Army of the First World War, the BEF, continued established precedent and practice. Um, also, the importance of the chaplain um, can't be underestimated. It's, it's um, it, in the folklore of the war, and Robert Graves has much to do with this, but other, other writers as well. The idea that um, the chaplain is some kind of ineffectual music hall character, this simply 
doesn't stand close scrutiny. If you look at the number of military crosses, for example, won by um, army chaplains during the First World War, if you look at the three Victoria Crosses won by the army chaplains department in the First World War, and if you look also at the figure of Bernard William Van, who uh, won the Victoria Cross posthumously in the autumn of 1918, battalion commander of the Sherwood Foresters, but also an ordained Anglican clergyman. One of the things that we've got to recognise as well, actually, looking beyond the uh, roll call of chaplains, are the hundreds, and I stress hundreds of clergy from the Protestant churches who enlisted as ordinary soldiers, as combatant officers, whose um, experiences have been largely forgotten or deliberately ignored by the churches, and indeed by other commentators after the war itself. So, um, yeah, and why were chaplains important? Well, they were chaplains, they were important. Religion was important in British society. It was important in the British army and always had been. Um, also, again, if you look at the formation of officers, professional officers towards the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th, the whole ethos of Sandhurst as a nursery for the officer corps, um, very much majored on Christian values of service and um, basically commitment to those under your command to serve. I think the motto of Sanders is to service to lead or something along those lines. My memory's imperfect, but the whole ethos really um, was governed by that um, sense of, 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 of Christian commitment to those who were placed under your care and your responsibility. So chaplains are important because uh, religion is important in British society, because, uh, for example, morality is shaped by Christian values. There is no higher appeal than the Ten Commandments, for example. The clergy, unlike the clergy of today, had tremendous moral authority in British society. But increasingly, as the war progressed, and this is dealt with in the book, but I've elaborated upon it in, in subsequent writing, when Douglas Haig becomes commander of the British Expeditionary Force in December 1915, he's aware that with the, you know, the first Military Service Act and the offing and conscription, you know, uh, a very imminent reality, he knew that essentially... You had to appeal to um, ideals, principles, etc., above and beyond, you know, King's regulations in order to keep the army motivated, in order to reassure the ordinary soldier that he is being looked after. And Haig turned to the chaplains. I mean, we have that. It's minuted in his diary. We have this um, very clearly. There's a whole kind of um, uh, paper trail in terms of the meetings of Haig and his army commanders in how he directed chaplains to be used from January 1916, that they had to inspire soldiers about the great cause. And he wrote that term in his diary and underlined it. Of course, he relied very much on his uh, personal chaplain or a person who became his a Presbyterian minister, young Presbyterian minister called George Duncan, who remains at GHQ for the rest of the war, who Haig placed enormous faith in. But also when one digs into the records of chaplaincy, they're very dispersed, they're very uh, widespread, but we, we know where they are now after many years of research. And um, when you look at the Rawlinson papers present in Downside Abbey, if you look at the um, the records of Anglican, senior Anglican chaplains conferences, which are present in the Royal Army Chaplains Museum at Shrivenham, what you see is, you know, very clearly worked out policy uh, governing the work of chaplains during the course of the war from 1916 onwards. Um, Certainly the, the minutes of the chaplains' conferences um, at the Royal Army Chaplains Museum basically say it all about the role of chaplaincy. And these are sources which have been completely neglected. The chaplain, certainly the Anglican chaplain on the Western Front from 1916 onwards, wasn't a free agent. The, the role, the brief of the chaplain was clearly understood 
there was a clear hierarchy within chaplaincy. Um, and um, the significance of chaplaincy in terms of the outcome of the war um, was not underplayed by figures as, as respected as plumber, Lord Plumber of Messines, as he became, by um, Julian Bing, by um, Sir Henry Horne, another great supporter of chaplaincy. So it's not just Hague. This isn't a Hague peculiarity. This goes right across the hierarchy of the British Army on the Western Front across the commanders of the British Expeditionary Force. And it goes down to battalion level and um, even down to company level, etc. The fact that um, officers were expected to show some kind of interest in the religious and moral well-being of their soldiers didn't necessarily work out in practice, but that was the theory. And what is significant is the extent to which you know, um, theory was lived out on the ground. Uh, some of the most fascinating records that I think anybody could read, actually, about the role of religion in the First World War would be the diaries of Bishop uh, Llewellyn Henry Gwynne, who was the senior Anglican chaplain on the Western Front from 1915 through to the end of the war. And in his diary includes records of conversations with senior officers, which are remarkable, absolutely remarkable, in which they they bear their souls about how they see the war how they see the role of religion, how they see the national cause. And um, for the soldier on the ground, however, one can't underestimate the role of the chaplain as a welfare officer in providing creature comforts, the role of the chaplain, particularly given the number of chaplains who were decorated, dozens and dozens of chaplains decorated for their work in religious, sorry, in regimental aid posts in particular, if they were infantry chaplains during the course of the war, recovering the wounded, directing stretcher bearers, this sort of thing. And, but beyond chaplaincy, I think it's really, really, really important. You have this whole apparatus of religious welfare agencies, which again, in many respects, are developments of pre-war precedent. And we can talk about the Young Men's Christian Association and Catherine White, formerly of Pembroke College, Oxford, has written a very, very good dissertation, PhD dissertation about the YMCA in the First World War and its work with the British Army. But beyond the YMCA and its ubiquitous ministry to British soldiers on the Western Front and indeed elsewhere, you have the Salvation Army, uh, a denomination, but also very important uh, Christian welfare agency in terms of its work with British soldiers. You also have the Church Army, Anglican equivalent of the Salvation Army, if you will. You also have the Scottish Church's Huts Committee, a Presbyterian equivalent, of um, YMCA work, and of course you have the Catholic Women's League as well. So the religious institutes, the religious organisations, and their facilities ran into the many thousands during the Cold War, illustrate again the significance of the role of religion and religious agents in the experience of the British soldier in the First World War. And if anyone's any in any doubt about this, they can only trawl through the um, archives at the Imperial War Museum or at the... Um, the little archive at the University of Leeds or wherever to see the amount of correspondence that was actually sent by soldiers on YMCA headed notepaper, which was distributed in YMCA canteens across all the fighting fronts and indeed in Great Britain itself. So um, even that, again, to use the analogy of the wind, you can see its effects, even if, you know, it's harder to construe it in and of itself. You see that even in, in the, the written records of the and so how does religion actually shape the lives of soldiers in the trenches in terms of does it make life easier? Does it give them a reason to, to fight? Does it give them a reason to carry on? Well, I think here, and to coin a phrase that was used by um, uh, an American historian, um, the name is, oh gosh, Schweitzer, uh, there is a spectrum 
inevitably. Um, there are a few unbelievers, and I do stress, or non-believers, I do. They occupy one end of the spectrum, and core churchgoers, communicants occupy another, and there's plenty of people in between, and they're shifting along the spectrum during the course of the war, you know, up or down, if you will, or left to right, right to left, depending how you want to configure it. But I think it, there's no doubt that um, prayer was an incre incredibly important um, resource, personal prayer, for ordinary soldiers. Um, that's not to say that they were kind of mystics in any way, shape or form. It's just to say that religion was a hugely important handrail, as it would be in civilian life for them. So personal prayer was very widespread. I think also the carrying of um, the New Testament. This is really important. Um, scripture was actually issued by the army from the early 19th century to its soldiers, and it continued to be issued during the First World War. And so it's absolutely routine for soldiers to carry the New Testament in their left breast pocket. This wasn't, I mean, sometimes that would be used for talismanic purposes, but it was something that, you know, had a cultural value and often a personal value as well. So we see in terms of what soldiers carried, one could go on, one could talk about rosaries, crucifixes, knickknacks up in France, many of which had, were Belgian, had a religious kind of significance. Um, we see in the material effect of soldiers uh, the importance of religion, or at least its encroachment on their horizon. And also, I think what's important is the anecdotal evidence of um, chaplains and others who would often comment on levels of communicants with proportions of communicants increasing before any major attack. Is it um, in the Anglican tradition that was um, perfectly in keeping with um, Eucharistic practice because. Communion was something you took at the point of death. And I think that's really very significant that communion services could have been so well attended in English battalions during the course of the war and before any big attack. It was very much in keeping with what you might call folk Anglicanism. So I think prayer, material religion, evidence of the retention of, of scripture, portions of scripture, tracts, um, also the um, the levels of communicants, as, as we've mentioned. Also the YMCA's war role pledge. This was something which the YMCA uh, project, which it undertook during the course of the war, where soldiers were asked to pledge themselves to a religious commitment um, from the time in which they took the pledge onwards. It was denominationally non-specific, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, in fact, took the war role pledge and the YMCA were perfectly uh, happy and content to see that was the case. I mean, one of the things we've also got to bear in mind is that one of the things that slightly muddies the question of um, religious attendance among British soldiers is that theoretically, under normal circumstances, religious attendance was compulsory. Uh, church parade or compulsory church attendance wasn't abolished in the British Army or indeed the Royal Navy or Royal Air Force until 1946. So basically, <laughs> in a very odd sense, you might say, um, basically, Pretty much everyone in the British Army was a reasonably regular church attender, whether they liked it or not, during the course of the First World War. But again, that's emblematic of the importance that um, is attached to religion in wider society and to the army as an institution. And the fact that it was resented, but often it was the parade aspect of the uh, church parade that was resented more than the religious itself. The fact that you had to, you know, spend part of your Sunday engaged in spit and polish and inspection. Right? This was never popular in the Victorian army, let alone in the uh, citizen army of the First World War. So I think it's important to put that in context and not to take reaction against church parade as a reaction against 
religion itself. In fact, some of the more devout soldiers in the army were most averse to church parade because they thought the mixing parade with church services was actually bad for the cause of religion rather than positive. So, um, yeah, again, we see these cross-cutting factors and we have to be aware of the, of the whole horizon and the whole context in which uh, religion and faith operates uh, in the army during the course of the First World War and not to jump to hasty conclusions. The, you know, the very broad pitch, which... Uh, I suppose, a reasonably accurate appraisal of the situation requires. I suppose something that, that has occurred to me is that the, the complaints that I get from various chaplains about the sacramental knowledge of soldiers, and I was just wondering whether it, having that sacramental knowledge or knowledge of, of scripture and having reading your Bible, whether that gives you a different type of, I suppose, religious experience, maybe than, than what we might call emergency religion or some scholars have, the way you, you pray when you're under artillery fire rather than you know it's, you, you call on god when you're when you're having a bit of a tough time versus people yeah. dedicated and, and attend church on a regular basis this is really interesting and i think to understand the view of the clergy and the commentary by clergy and indeed informed laity on the state of religion in the british army during the first world war one has to kind of make the comparison between the clergy of that generation and perhaps today's health professionals. It's never going to be good enough. The role of the clergy is always to demand and exact a higher level of commitment, a higher level of affiliation, as it were, a stronger degree of affiliation. So you mentioned emergency religion. This was often referred to disparagingly by chaplains, such as Studdard Kennedy, the famous Woodbine Williams, uh, as something which was a kind of slightly kind of debased form of religion. But, I mean, he is speaking as... Uh, an Anglican priest, as uh, a theologian in his rough and ready way, as somebody who was very keen on evangelising the working classes. Of course, this wasn't going to be good enough. You're always expecting a higher standard. Um, they are professionally disappointed. This is the important point to make. And in that, they are no different from, let's say, the Puritans of the 17th century, the Methodists of the 18th and 19th century. Of course, you're always going to be demanding ever growing levels of commitment, etc. And that's the ideal. Most people fall short of that. But that doesn't mean to say that religion is unimportant. And there are other indicators of um, how religion played out and its significance could be represented. Because in 1919, and this is often cited, it's a text that's widely misunderstood because its background isn't fully explored. And those who are interested in the background of this particular report could go to the Cambry Research Library at Birmingham University and look at the paperwork and the paper trail surrounding this report. Published in 1919, the Army and Religion Report it, um, basically professed or purported to be an objective, an objective survey of the state of religion in the British Army. And it was published under the aegis of the YMCA. It involves some very high level um, clergy, both uh, military and civilian. And it's been read and treated by many historians as an accurate appraisal of the state of religion in the British Army during the latter months of the First World War. But in actual fact, when you look at the terms under which it was compiled, first of all, the Irish and the Welsh were excluded from um, this particular study of religion. So you automatically lose two of the more identifiably religious ethnic groups in the British Army. Then you cut away the Catholics and then you say, well, you know, maybe... You know, it's a minority of men who are meaningfully committed to the church. Well, what does that mean? That's a very elastic term, as it were. The Army and Religion Report found that um, 
atheism, spiritualism, etc., weren't really the problem. It was making that leap between those who had a, a nominal or fairly basic faith into fully fledged church, church membership and participation. That was the problem. It wasn't the problem of of not of non-belief or of, of disillusion with religion. The Army and Religion Report interestingly found that the person of Jesus had immediate appeal to soldiers. They'd been reared with him in Sunday school, in uh, church schools, etc. They saw his figure on crosses, on crucifixes and calvaries in France and Belgium. Not hard to sell Jesus to the ordinary Tommy, as it were. And also what was very significant is that even the Army and Religion Report, which tended to adopt a fairly hand-wringing approach to the state of religion among British soldiers, said that one of the things that you can really sell very easily are stories about missionary activity in the wider world. You lay on a missionary lecture, you'll pack a hut. They love to hear this stuff. And again, these are oblique, but they're significant. You get enough of these oblique facts and you build a picture. And essentially what you're dealing with, and we're back to the realm of diffusive Christianity, we're back to the space in which religion matters, it's normative, but the degrees of commitment vary enormously. And because you're not at the upper end of that uh, hierarchy of commitment doesn't mean to say that religion doesn't matter to you. And I think one of the most important points to make in assembling uh, a view of all of this is if you look at the whole national culture of remembrance that develops after the First World War, the centrality of the cross, be it the cross of sacrifice in Imperial War Grave cemeteries, or if you look at the incisions on uh, uh, Imperial War Grave Commission headstones, etc., the the cross, the religious references, the you know the the great stone of of, of remembrance, for example, Lichten's Stone of Remembrance, that is a deliberate echo of the um, of the prospective sacrifice of Isaac in the Book of Genesis. It's also very altar-like. Those um, I'm sure your listeners will have been to many of the major war cemeteries. And if you look at the, the Stone of Remembrance, gosh, it is an altar. You know, this none of this would have washed. None of this would have had any weight unless it had registered and resonated with those who had been part of the conflict. You cannot write a script or form a culture of remembrance like that in which Christian motif, Christian uh, tropes are so fundamental without reflecting the essence of society itself. It's simply um, impossible. I mean, one of the, the problems actually in terms of interpreting the cult of remembrance after the war is that, um, for example, the two-minute silence has been seen as somehow a secular kind of observation because no explicit Christian prayer is offered in that space. It's people are left to be quiet. Well, the reason people are left to be quiet is essentially because religious arguments, which were bound to happen, would obtrude if you tried to, I mean, for example, non-liturgical Protestants would not follow, or would only follow very reluctantly, a scripted prayer. Catholics at this point in the history of the Catholic Church didn't pray with non-Catholics. There's a whole bunch of reasons why the two-minute silence is conceived as a silent act of prayer, but it is conceived as a, as a moment of prayer. This is very important, and it's understood as that by George V, for example. And also, if you look at the um, at the unveiling of the Cenotaph in 1920, and it's often said, well, the Cenotaph is a secular um, edifice. Well, I mean, Cenotaph actually means empty tomb, and you have to have a very, very limited awareness of Christianity not to instantly see kind of comparator or the echoes of, you know, 
death and resurrection of Christ in the term empty tomb. Also, what's important about the um, unveiling of the cenotaph is it is followed very swiftly with the singing of, oh God, our help in ages past and with the recitation of the Lord's Prayer. And of course, what's important about the unveiling of the cenotaph is that is the support act, as it were, to the interment of the unknown warrior in Westminster Abbey. We tend to reverse the importance of the two sites today, but at the time, it was the unknown warrior that had precedent. And the unveiling of the cenotaph was part of the procession of the body of the unknown warrior to Westminster Abbey. So again, it's easy to, to project our own assumption onto what is quite, you know, a complex religious picture, but it's complex because it's multifaceted and it's complex because it's important. And these um, considerations cut across the whole um, culture of remembrance, as we said, you know, the two minute silence. How do you need, how do you lead a multi-religious empire in a moment of prayer? Well, the only way you do it is by offering silent prayer on a personal basis. I mean, that in a sense addresses the heart of what we're talking about, that um, um, in this instance, as in so much of history, uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Where in, in this instance, the silence of the two-minute silence speaks volumes about the importance of religion to the British Empire in general. I mean, the cenotaph is has no discernible Christian um, iconography apart from the flags, which is significant, because of the importance of religion in a multi-faith empire. That point was made at the time when the cenotaph was being designed. So again, it's not the absence of religion that's significant here, it's the importance and the salience. of. And in that analysis, do you think religion has is a, is a factor that leads the BEF to victory in, in, the, in the winter of 1918? Do I think religion is a factor in this? Well, I, th I think religion is an important um, ingredient in the whole fabric of morale of the British army. I think one of the important things to remember is that the German army, for example, possesses nothing like the infrastructure of welfare, which the YMCA, the Salvation Army, the Church Army and other organisations provide. I mean, obviously, the German army doesn't have the material uh, resource to, to feed into that um, into that uh, nexus that the British Empire has, etc. But I think what's also very important is if you look at the proportion of chaplains in the British Army relative to the French or the German or indeed other armies, that the you know the British Army has the highest proportion of chaplains than any other of the belligerent armies of the major combatants in the First World War, the major belligerent. And what's really important, again, and it's neglected because kind of the transnational studies of the war tend to be quite limited in a religious context, military context in particular, that when the American expeditionary force arrives in France in 1917 and begins its build-up into 1918, uh, Pershing appreciates the importance of religion. And who does he go to for mentoring in terms of the shaping of American chaplaincy? It's to the British and it's to the Army Chaplains Department, as it's then constituted. Significantly, the prefix royal follows the end of the war. It comes in uh, 1919. So the fact that the Americans are looking to the Brits, um, the Canadians look to the Brits, the Australians look to the Brits. The idea that the British chaplaincy failed or was somehow simply marginal or insignificant to the morale of the British Army is, I think, is a fallacy. But in addition to chaplaincy, you have to feed in the contribution of the YMCA and these other organisations um, 
in order to arrive at this idea, yes, you know, that religion and religious agencies, and I put the two together, really did help to make a difference, really did help to underwrite um, the morale of the British Army. It's not to say that British soldiers went into action during the 100 days fired up in any way like Cromwell's Ironsides. That's not the point. The fact is they went... Um, accompanied by a disproportionate number of chaplains, supported by the YMCA, and indeed um, in the full knowledge that the society which they represented was utterly committed to the war because it felt that the war was just and that sense of justice was grounded in Christian moral principles. That's absolutely fundamental. Yes, you could say the Germans felt the same, but that's not really the point. The fact is the Brits felt it and believed it. And of course, that sacralization of the war effort is reflected in the whole culture of remembrance which followed it. So within the, with individuals, how how does their personal background shape their religious faith in terms of does social class make a difference? Does the fact you come from a rural community make a difference or are there other factors at play? Oh, I mean, as you know, as with today, there are all sorts of factors that will feed into a religious outlook or, or none, as it were. So but if you look at, um, I mean, denomination plays an important role. So, for example, um, Catholics were regarded as, you know, they were a small minority of the British population at that time. But there was a great emphasis in British and indeed Irish Catholicism on Catholic education, on catechesis, etc. And so what was often commented upon was the high levels of affiliation, practice and knowledge um, that Catholic soldiers would would demonstrate. Uh, it's quite common for Anglican chaplains, for example, to hanker after the degree of religious literacy which ordinary Catholic soldiers would possess. Denomination matters. Class matters as well, um, in the sense that um, if you, for example, had been to a public school and in the reformed public schools of the mid to late Victorian period and the decades leading up to the First World War, you know, the values which form the public school ethos are Christian and classical, and the centre of any public school is the uh, chapel. And so officers with a public school background would have been immersed in um, a chapel going culture from school. They may react favorably to that or against it on a personal level that varied, but you couldn't escape its influence. And not only um, the influence of the chapel itself, but the familiarity which most people had. I mean, conversancy with the Bible was a marker of a good education at an elite as well as a popular level. Um, religious illiteracy was not celebrated as a virtue. I think it's important to point that out. Um, at the bottom end of the social spectrum, if you will, at the other end, I should say, um, Sunday school was a very, very important institution of, of working class life. That's even if you didn't go to a church elementary school, which, of course, many children did in any event, be it Anglican or Catholic. And the Sunday school as a popular institution is reflected in the fact that um, the great majority of British soldiers had what we would regard as a Sunday school level education. They would know basic prayers such as the Lord's Prayer. They would know a repertoire of hymns and the importance of hymn singing is reflected or hymnody in society at this time is reflected in the fact that British soldiers parodied hymns and you can't parody something which is unfamiliar because it doesn't make sense. So, for example, you know, the, the classic case, Fred Carnot's Army um, and the hymn, I think that was uh, the church's one foundation is I think that is the uh, inspiration behind the tune for Fred Carnot's army. But basically the the influences which formed particular attitudes, personal attitudes were derived from social class, from education, 
from family background, from ethnicity. Yes, it was more likely in a rural setting that the church would have more influence institutionally. It would be more likely to be in its orbit, arguably, than an urban setting, but historians dispute that. So all sorts of factors feeding into this. And of course, the the experience of war itself could um, affect significant religious changes. And what is interesting is that given our secularizing era and our secularizing age, what have been privileged are stories of religious disillusionment, anecdotes of, of you know, um, Robert Graves being, a, you know, one example, there are others. But we've got to remember, for example, that Siegfried Sassoon later in life became a Roman Catholic, a very devout Roman, even though at the time he was religiously sceptical or averse to the Institutional Church of England. So many people, for example, had decades of life to live after the First World War, and also that the religious influences which shaped them continued after the war. So, for example, it was difficult in Catholic circles to judge the number of soldiers who became Catholics as a result of the war, because many of them, for example, might have Catholic wives or Catholic fiancés, and a mixed marriage in that era, again, illustrating the importance of religion, wasn't a marriage of different races or different ethnicities. It was understood as a marriage of different denominations. So it was quite possible, for example, to be influenced subsequent after the war to be brought into the orbit of another religious tradition as a result of marriage. So I think that it's possible to overstate the significance of religion, of the war rather, in shaping religious attitudes, both at a personal and indeed at a national level. What's really significant is if you look at church attendance figures, such as they are after both world wars, you don't see any significant difference uh, between what obtained before the First World War. You know, you look in vain for an emptying of the church. And I think what's really interesting about the um, the aftermath of the First World War is, of course, you know, the BBC and religious uh, and broadcasting takes off in the 1920s, and religious broadcasting is a inevitable concomitant of uh, Lord Reith's or John Reith's rather BBC. And the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems which the churches faced going into the later 1920s was not disillusionment, religious disillusionment resulting from the war. It's a number of people who are staying at home listening to religious broadcasts rather than going to church because they see one as an, you know, uh, as an adequate substitute for the other. So I think often what we're looking for when we look at the... Um, the secularizing impact of the war is um, it's a, it, it's elusive. You you can't put it down. I think the great the best thing to if I can put it rather trenchantly the best the most important lesson to to learn about the secularizing effects of the First World War is that they're not very noticeable if indeed they exist at all. And you could even argue make a case that um, religious life is invigorated in in some ways by, for example, the fact that Armistice Day. An armistice tide, and that term deliberately picks up on Christmas tide, Easter tide, and the tides associated with the Christian calendar. This is a religious observance. It's marked by religious um, services, and so you you add to the calendar of of Christian England as a result of the First World War. You don't subtract from it. And also, again, the um, the enormous effort that is paced put into commemorating the war at a local and indeed national level and how much of that is framed uh, within you know a religious framework so yeah I, I when when I look at the the religious impact of the first world war I can only conclude that my 
on a very personal level that my grandfather's experience and his religious trajectory after the First World War was not untypical of his generation. He wasn't the auditor. Finally, where can people learn more about your work? Oh, well, I would I, I, I would read, if I can submit this, um, God and the British Soldier. It was published by Routledge in 2005. I would also point them to... Um, a more recent book, this was published last year, it's called A Church Militant, Anglicans and the Armed Forces from Queen Victoria to the Vietnam War, which places the experience of the First World War for the majority Christian denomination in the British Empire at this time in a longer term context, and which helps to illustrate and situate the religious experience of the First World War in a longer term Context. I mean, one of the fascinating things, for example, about the uh, bench of bishops in the Church of England in the interwar years and indeed the years of the Second World War and on into the, uh, the Cold War era is just how many bishops were veterans of the First World War. It's astonishing, you know, and the fact that um, leadership in the church was often equated with or the qualifications for leadership in the church with actual experience of leading men in battle. Oh, that was absolutely fascinating, looking at the biographies of Anglican bishops from um, the middle decades of the 20th century. Uh, one Bishop of Ely, for example, had been one of the youngest battalion commanders on the Western Front during the First World War and had been wounded something like 22, 23 times. An astonishing figure. But um, again, you know, if you were to stand toe to toe with leaders in secular society, leaders of government, leaders in wider society, you needed that. CV and many clergy in the Church of England and indeed in other denominations possess these credentials in spades. So a church militant, it's a, it's a bit pricey, but hopefully your listeners may find it illuminating. And they'll be able to fund your trip to Rio. <laughs> oh, I can, I can dream. I can dream. Michael, on that bombshell, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much indeed for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>